the the life cycle and the needs um, have to come from somewhere. I think I think if you take the books and you say this is a prescriptive way that we're going to run our our SRE team or our ops function or whatever, uh, you're missing the point a bit. And this is actually uh, harking back to what Betsy was saying. Um, you've got to start with actually caring about the customer experience in some way with the SLOs. Uh, the, the SLOs is the way that, that we center the conversation, we ground it. Because if you're not doing some engineering function because it will improve reliability, but you're doing it because there's a chapter in the book about it, then you're missing the point. listening to the Achieving DevOps podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Well, hello, folks. I'd like to introduce you to two very good friends of mine, uh, Betsy Beyer and Stephen Thorne. And they have written some very, very influential books around site reliability engineering uh, and, and Google. So, um, Stephen, uh, Betsy, why don't you guys introduce yourselves a little bit? Talk to us about where you're from and how you kind of found yourself writing these these great books that we love so much. Why don't you sure. go first, Betsy? You've written more books than I have. Okay. <laughs> um, first, props on pronouncing my name right, Dave. Um, <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So, That's the part of the buyer part. The buyer part. A lot of people say Bayer. Um, really? So it's oh, that's interesting. But I mean, you can call me whatever, but you got it right. So, yeah. Um, so, as previously stated, I'm Betsy Bayer. Um, about me, I am, as you can probably tell from my redneck accent, um, from North Carolina originally. I've been in New York for six years at this point, uh, lived in California for a little more than a decade. New Orleans briefly. Um, I've been a tech writer for about 10 years, and I started out writing about Google's data centers and switched over to SRE about six years ago when I moved to New York. Um, so that's how I ended up in this space. Um, started working on the first SRE book back in 2015, and from there we published the workbook after that that Stephen um, and I worked on together, and yeah, the rest is history. Now, how did you run into Steven? Oh, so we worked together. Um, I, mo mostly, I, I was I was an SRE in London, and I, I knew um, Niall Murphy, who was another collaborator on the first book. Uh, I, I knew Betsy through some some tech writing stuff, and uh, when Niall had uh, set the groundwork for the site reliability workbook. Uh, we needed somebody to actually sort of uh, take up the torch from him and carry it through on the. Uh, so Betsy's a technical writer. I was I was the technical lead on the book. Uh, actually, sort of trying to pull all of the the technical threads together, and then uh, Betsy, uh, could you tell us what tech writing actually is? Yes. <laughs> no, tech writing can be a lot of different things. Um, it can be internal or external. You know, it can be anything from writing a microwave user guide to documenting software to documenting hardware. But basically, I like to think about tech writing as a kind of translator between engineers and the people who need to read the stuff that they wrote in its original garble. 
So we do a lot of like, I do original writing. I do curation of information. I do a lot of, you know, helping people visualize an article from outline to execution. I do a lot of polishing once people do give me rough content. So, you know, tech writing can kind of be whatever you want it to be, but um, generally it's writing, but it's also adding technical value to the content that you're working. So, and Steven, I'm sorry, we kind of ran over your introductions. How did you, how did you find your way into, into Google in this industry? Uh, well, I've before Google, I was a software engineer for over ten years, and I I'd worked on all sorts of systems. I'd worked at all all levels. Like at my at my previous uh, company, I was I was both writing the bootloader and as well as the the, the user interfaces uh, for for the the product that we were building there. So I I sort of got to see the full stack, and as and as well as actually sort of building all of that stuff, I was also responsible for the operational side of things. And uh, and even the, to a limited expense, extent, customer support because it's a very small company, and so I got to see the whole DevOps thing. Uh, we didn't call it DevOps back then, but uh, you know the the the, new, the newer ways of working uh, are very very much up front. And then I went from there to Google. I think eight and a half years ago, so yeah, 2011, um, where I I had a I had a great time because it was exactly what I'd been working on, except instead of just a couple of thousand machines, I was suddenly working with much, much more scalable systems, much, much better, bigger architectures, and some some really great, really great people. Did the um, these books are hugely influential? Uh, we, we reference them all the time at Microsoft, and and I hear them all the time at conferences. Did the success of these books catch you off guard a little bit? I feel like when I first started working on the first book, I thought, hey, this is a cool idea. Um, you know, getting information out there about something basically we invented at Google, taking influences from DevOps and things across the industry. Um, so it was, you know, we kind of put a stake in the ground and we didn't really know how it would float. So, yeah, I think we were all surprised by the level of success that the books have had. Um, I mean, because, you know, you can personally think that something you're working on is interesting, but when other people find it valuable too, and it kind of lasts over, over several years, that's really gratifying. And Betsy, it, it, uh, Stephen says that you're, you're busy finishing up work on your third book. Can you tell us about it a little bit? Yes, happily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one piece of feedback we got about the first two books and funnily enough, uh, the first book was inducted into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame, although the piece of feedback they gave us was, well, you didn't really talk about security. Could you say something about that? <laughs> um, so we heard, we heard the call for more information on that. And so this next book is pivoting more towards security, and it's called Building Secure and Reliable Systems, um, subtitle still in flux a little bit, but it really is looking at the intersection of security and reliability and talking about factoring both of those together in to system design from the very first stages um, and how those two attributes of a system really do go hand in hand. Like you can't have a fundamentally trusted system unless it's both secure and reliable. When we were working on the second book, somebody actually pitched us, hey, could we could we have a chapter on security? Can we have a chapter on security? And the, <laughs> the reason we decided not to was because 
it was such a large area and there was so much to talk about that it really deserved its own book. And so, so if you actually look through the index of the workbook, there's, there's, there's no security in the index. Uh, well, sorry, the, the chapter index. Uh, just, just because we couldn't, we couldn't do a good job of it uh, with just one chapter. It would take far too much. Yeah, I mean, literally, this is going to be a 500-page book, or as close to that as we can get, um, staying in our page limit. So, yeah, exactly echoing what Stephen said. We had a lot to say. So much in in that area, and the, the problem with security is that it changes so fast. You run the risk of writing 500 pages that you know could be dated by the time it's printed. Yeah, and that's kind of, you know, a tension we dealt with in the, S the first two SRE books too. It's like, how do we future-proof this content so we're the that we're writing more about concepts and theory more than, you know, specific implementations of current technology? So to the best of our ability, we've tried to future-proof stuff. I mean, there's always going to be a few things that do get dated, but... Hopefully not most of it. It's it's such an interesting topic because I remember as a as a developer, um, yes, we'd have to worry about security, but all it would always come in very late stage, and it would in form of an audit, and it would always add on uh, weeks to our development timeline. So it was a pain integrating um, security as a bolt on like that. Yeah, I mean that's one thing we really emphasize in the book. If you are bolting on security at the last minute, like it's going to be painful. It's going to be expensive, um, and it's not going to be as good as if you had been thinking about it throughout the life cycle of developing, you know, a system or a product. So you know, it's not always practical to start from the beginning. So we do address like, well, what happens if I already have a system that needs to be protected better. So we do we do go into that. Um, but yeah, really to, to, a certain, to a certain extent, right? This is this is the same thing that we talk about in in the first two books about how reliability is genuinely a feature of a system, just like your product features. And in mm -hmm. exactly the same way, security is is actually a feature which, like at a product management level and at a system inception time you should actually be paying attention to as well, right? Yes, and it's it, one of the, I love so much the SRE workbook, especially the part when it said, listen, it's not like you can just flip a switch and an unreliable system becomes reliable. Once a system becomes unreliable, it's really hard to bring it back to a stable state. Yep. Such a great point. Um, what's the, the biggest misconception that you still see uh, around site reliability engineering? It's, it's uh, we see it being adopted almost everywhere it seems like. I think more and more Google is emphasizing that unless your SRE practices are fundamentally based on SLOs um, that we see really as a foundational building block of SRE, then you know your measurements and your reliability isn't going to really be meaningful. Uh, I'm sure Stephen can say a lot about SLOs too, but he might think <laughs> that there's another misconception that's more important. So I won't put words into his mouth. Well, no, I don't really list it as a misconception. I think that's just the, the first building block that you have to start with. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you, you're coming into a system and you, you really want to monitor it and figure out how it's going in order to be able to do it, to, to actually decide what you're going to do with the engineering side of, of SRE. But that's the misconception which I see the most, is um, we have people who who want to apply an SRE way of operating the system instead of their existing operations technology or whatever. So they take their, all their ops folks 
and they say, all right, you're all now SRE, but you've all got to do exactly as much as operations as you used to do. Uh, but now you've got to spend time doing engineering, but we're only going to measure you the same way we used to measure you, you know, on ticket closure rates and your um, uh, interaction SLAs. So suddenly they're, they're serving two masters. They're serving the, the, the turn of getting all these tickets sorted and, and, uh, uh, and then at the same time, they're actually responsible for burning down their toil and improving the reliability of the system, but they've got no bandwidth to do it. So the the thing that I I say is that once you're actually implementing SRE, you should actually throw away those old incentives and put incentives around project delivery and improvement, uh, not incentives around like how how quickly can you close tickets when uh, when your pager goes off because that thing that always happens happens. Uh, because otherwise you're incentivizing in two different ways and it just doesn't work. Um, I think one more when we're talking about misconceptions, a good pithy one is that 100% uh, reliability is almost always the wrong target. Um, you should really be aiming for reliability that is meaningful to your users and that, you know, if your user is not going to notice the difference between a third and a fourth nine, say, for a mobile application because their mobile network probably has latency, then, you know, are you spending a ton of money to get that extra nine and it doesn't really, you know, pay out for you in any meaningful way? Um, unfortunately, even, you know, pacemakers and stuff like that don't have 100% reliability. That was something that shocked me a little bit when you brought it up. I think that was actually in, in the book. That even yeah. even pacemakers, even automotive brakes, not a hundred percent. My my father had to go to the hospital a couple of weeks ago because of a malfunction with his pacemaker. Um, uh, that's a, that's a thing that happens. Is he okay? Oh, he's fine now. Um, okay, good. I assume you wouldn't be bringing it up so lightheartedly if he wasn't. But... <laughs> yeah. So and, and uh, sorry to, to be clear, it was a software problem with his pacemaker. It was running his heart too fast, and they had to go to the hospital wow. reconfigure it. Yeah, yeah. So, so you talk about like, oh no, these things are one hundred percent reliable. No, no, they're demonstrably not. <laughs> And if we think they are, then we're lying to ourselves. I really wasn't <laughs> hoping for a real world uh, example of that, but <laughs> thank you nonetheless. Yeah, it's a very, uh, yeah, we're sorry about that difficult time, yeah. Stephen. Uh, <laughs> but it is an interesting point, though, because a lot of times when, when, when people from the outside think about SRE teams, they say, oh, these, these people are, um, you know, they're, they're the brakes, right? They, they slow it down so we fit within this error budget or an SLO. But it's, that's not always the case. In fact, many times a, a good SRE is kind of encouraging a balance, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, what, what I what I say is like an SRE team should also be telling you to speed up, like it, and and we know that. Um, and, and if you, you just have to look at the Dora report and and the, the the that that research to say, oh, actually, it turns out the more frequently you release the more reliable you're going to be. And it's the duty of the SREs to say, hey, look, the system is reliable. We've actually got rollouts all sorted. Our release management's good. Uh, but the one missing piece is somebody still thinks that monthly rollouts is a good idea. Uh, and, and you've really got to actually sort of say, no, we've got this error budget. We've got to spend it. We've got to increase our release velocity. We've got to increase the velocity of our teams. We've got to, um, and in some, in some cases, sort of say, hey, why are we spending so much on our compute when we could spend half as much and have the same reliability and actually sort of push those limits? 
Uh, I, I, the, a colleague of mine um, has, has this way of phrasing it, that SRE is about uh, delivering appropriate reliability uh, at minimum cost. So uh, actually addressing the cost part of running systems as well as reliability. And, and the, the key there is actually appropriate reliability, not maximum reliability. Uh, and sometimes it's like, oh, actually, let's have less reliability. That'd be fine for our users and actually better for the system. Yeah, and I think all that goes to the fact that we, you know, emphasize that the SRE developer relationship should not be antagonistic. Like, we do want to be true partners in that relationship. And yeah, like Stephen said, sometimes that means telling you you should accelerate release. One of the things uh, I think a common misconception people have is that at Google, um, every one of these development teams has an SRE that handles the bulk of production support. But that's that's actually not the default. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely true. I'll let you guess, Stephen. Um, uh, and the, additionally to that, and I'll add to, uh, add to what you say, is if they don't have an SRE team, it doesn't mean that they're less reliable than the, than the teams that do have SRE. Uh, I I was uh, I, I have many times actually gone and, and looked at other people's production systems and systems which are entirely dev managed, and they're they're very well run, good production hygiene. They've got their own on-call rotation, and they just put their developers responsible for their own product, and that's a perfectly reasonable way of doing things if they don't want to spend the money to have an SRE team, because uh, that's the model that we run at Google is is uh, in order to get an SRE team, you've got to actually sort of have fewer developers in order to actually fund the SRE. Yeah, and then just like a really basic kind of economic thing, if you want to scale SRE knowledge, like consulting model is a really good way to do that. I mean, that's something that tech writers do a lot too, right? I might not have time to restructure your entire documentation set, but I can talk to you for an hour and give you advice and empower you to do it yourself. Same kind yeah. of thing with, we have SRE office hours where you know anybody can come and ask somebody knowledgeable about reliability for advice. And, and that's uh, sort of the, the sort of hidden SRE where these teams, you know, they don't have SREs, they're, they're on call for their own service, but they're basing on all sorts of horizontal technologies that we, we provide internally at Google. Uh, you know, um, uh, Spanner, uh, Borg, which is our orchestration layer for containers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all of those are all entirely SRE managed. And so, so our developer development teams are standing on the shoulders of giants in, in that respect. Uh, or, or, or turtles all the way down, if that's a metaphor that you prefer. I love that. That's, that's terrific. One of the things I, I really just I just love about um, the single focus on on like reliability is a lot of times a stakeholder has expectations around availability, and we need to have that conversation um, because because their expectations about reliability being darn near like pacemaker level uh, may not. It just may not be reality. And especially since they've also got expectations around, we're gonna be delivering this value and, and these new features, and it's all gonna happen very quickly. And having that conversation around error budgets and how much downtime do you wanna accept in the interest of delivering value faster. It's it's important to have that, um, have a team that, that is entirely focused on that one topic of reliability and availability is really powerful. We certainly think that it's worked well. So with this, with the SRE workbook and the, in the earlier site reliability engineering book, um, do you see 
some teams kind of running off the rails pretty much? Or can we follow that like a prescription, more or yeah. less? Like a company that wants to ta- take this on and doesn't want to go down the route of, we're going to take our ops teams and give them the same incentives. And now you guys are, are SREs. The, the, the life cycle and the needs um, have to come from somewhere. I think, I think if you take the books and you say, this is a prescriptive way that we're going to run our, our SRE team or our ops function or whatever, uh, you're missing the point a bit. And this is actually uh, harking back to what Betsy was saying. Um, you've got to start with actually caring about the customer experience in some way with the SLOs. Uh, the, the SLOs is the way that, that we center the conversation, we ground it. Because if you're not doing some engineering function because it will improve reliability, but you're doing it because there's a chapter in the book about it, then you're missing the point. I mean, the, the reason why we do release management that way, the reason why we do uh, canaries, why we do uh, toil management, all of those things are to keep those things under control. Uh, now, I've, I'll, I'll actually bring this up here. Not every team at Google uh, follows these practices the way that we've written them down. What we did was we went to each of our teams and found people who could give uh, accurate information about the best way to do these things. But, you know, uh, not every team is as mature as every other team. And and that's actually appropriate because if you don't, ha- if you don't have uh, more than one binary to release and it releases every week fine, then you don't have to put a whole lot of energy into... Um, into incredibly complicated release management stuff, whereas other teams who have incredibly complicated relationships between microservices do, and so you don't you you do or you don't need that 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 level of complexity of of management, and we we apply it when we need it, not simply because we decided it was a good idea five years ago when we wrote a book. And I think we'd also very much like to acknowledge that while Google has a lot of great best practices and so on. Like we're not the be all and end all of the best way to do SRE for everybody. Um, So we really wanted to put these books out as a way of starting a conversation with the industry and knowing that, you know, we can learn stuff from other companies too. Like we might have coined this, you know, name of this discipline, site reliability engineering, but that doesn't mean we should only be looking inward for ways to improve upon what we're doing right now. I thought that was really interesting about the book because I've heard people at conferences saying, listen, you know, the future of DevOps is SRE, but in in your books, you, you guys refuse to be that definitive. And actually you've said it's, just, it's a very specific implementation of DevOps, but you know, our version of SRE and even SRE itself is not going to be, you know, uh, it's not the one answer for everyone. Absolutely. You can't have a a one size fits all. You can't sort of say, this is the way to run your organization, go do it. Um, Because somebody's going to turn around and say, but, but, but that's not the problem I have. That's, that's not the way that's not any, that's going to solve any of the issues that I, that I'm facing. And so that's, that's why it's uh, very, very important, we think, to start the conversation about what problems do you actually genuinely have? What do, your, what do your customers actually genuinely care about? Okay, what are we gonna do to actually address those issues? And that's where I like to start the conversation. Because if you just start with, um, uh, at a random chapter, let's say, uh, that might contain a solution to a problem that you, that you think you have, but you've got to ground it in what, you, what problems your customers actually have. Well put, Stephen. <laughs> 
I'm curious, when I talk to many people about SRE, one of the objections I get is, Dave, we're, we're running these very small, you know, cross-functional teams, right? They're all eight, eight person teams, maybe 12. We simply can't do 24 by seven support. You know, this, this model isn't going to, to work for us. Um, is it necessary to have some skin in the game for developers? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'll, uh, I have seen so many dysfunctions where the developers have not valued the time of the people running the system because they're totally disconnected from it. And, and just having uh, the, your phrasing skin in the game, um, just having some connection to how it is to actually run the system is so valuable. And that's actually why we put SREs on call for services, why we don't sort of have a separate sort of operations function from the SRE function. And why uh, when, thing, when the pager goes off, it's, it's an SRE who, who takes it immediately. It's not, you know, first level, second level, tertiary escalation, uh, simply because being viscerally connected to what's going on with the system, you never have that sort of, oh, yeah, it's that happening again. I'll just, I'll just silence that. That's just happening again. I'll just silence that. Uh, you, you're actually motivated to get it fixed and never see that problem again. Yeah, I was going to say, by the same token, that's why I think it's so important that, you know, a big part of the SRE role is doing software development. Because if you're on call for service, exactly like Stephen said, you know what needs to be fixed and you have, you know, direct motivation to go in and do that. It's not like you're filing some feature request to some team that you never see or talk to who may or may not care about fixing something in a timely fashion. And I, I think um, some companies that uh, tend to be more recipe driven, I guess, and applying SRE, they miss that point about caring about toil. You mentioned that a little bit earlier that, hey, we, we really try to cap um, the operational side of, of an SRE's job because we know if it gets far above, I think it was 50% or so, we've, we've got an issue. Do you want to kind of go into that a little bit more? Sure. So, uh, okay. So the, what we say in the book, um, is, is we, we prefer to keep the amount of toil that your team is doing under 50%, um, so that you have time to do project work. Um, so another way I like to phrase it is, uh, your SRE team, their principal function is to deliver on projects. There should be projects that they are doing, but they're also doing the toil that when I say toil, I mean um, work that has no lasting value. Like you might, you might be uh, provisioning some systems. You might be doing some configuration management. You know, a, any anything that keeps the the the, soft, the 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 system running, and then that's that. Well, by definition, has no lasting value. You you also need this this team because they're, they're staffed by software engineers, people who actually understand architecture. They know exactly how the systems put together you really want to know what are they going to achieve this quarter, this year, this, this planning cycle? What, what are their goals? What are they going to achieve? What, at the end of it, what lasting value have they created? If, if there's too much toil, they'll fail at those projects. And in fact, when you, when you sort of like go and do the performance management of your team and say, hey, how are we going? Um, how, how is this team functioning? You should be asking, how, how is their project delivery? Not how is their toil? Um, and in, and then when they come to you and say, help, help, we have too much toil and we can't get any projects done. That's a severe problem that they need to fix because they can't do the primary function of their team. 
And so uh, that's that's why toil management is such a big issue. And I think really just at you know the most basic level, if you're employing a bunch of intelligent people, it really doesn't make sense to leverage them to do work that doesn't require thought. Um, like not only is it a waste of resources and it doesn't scale, but if your employees get bored, they're not going to be happy. You know, people actually like to be challenged and have a sense of accomplishment at completing projects and not just, you know, hitting the same series of keys on their keyboard. Yeah, some people, some people find, love find that... toil, by the way. Oh, yeah. No, actually, I, I, was, I was actually going to say that to you, Betsy. Uh, some people absolutely really love that and they get a huge amount of uh, a benefit from that. But I, I think um, th this is where I'm going to bring bring up Ben Trainer's quote, which is in the introduction to the first book, that uh, site reliability engineering is what happens when you get a software engineer to design an operations function. I hope I got that one correct. But the, the point is that the software engineers are not the sort of people who find value in that, in that uh, repetitive work. Hopefully, and right. and they're gonna and they're going to approach that that repetitive work um, uh, uh, with with sort of an immune response, right? They they dislike it so much that they're actually going to strive to get rid of it, and and that was an intent of of putting software engineering into this operations function, uh, and that's that that's uh, why we've ended up with this, uh, you know, so many years later, this way of doing things. That's really the primary value of DevOps. It's not making the developer's life easier. If we do it right, we're, we're making it harder. Um, <laughs> it's bringing the value of automation and eliminating toil to the operations team, to the IT team. And, and the enablement. I, th I, think that's, I think that's the piece in some organizations which is lacking. Like you've got the, you've got the, the will to create automation and remove toil and uh, do this. But sometimes you just don't have the enablement. You don't have you don't have the uh, the the team who wants to do it, but they don't have the tooling, or they don't have the skills, or they don't have the remit. They don't even have the ability to make those decisions themselves. That that's if in order to make a functioning SRE team, you have to provide that enablement. Or, yeah, or I also think that's also why SRE is you know fundamentally a challenging job because hopefully people have solved the really easy problems on your team already. So the problems you're left with are very challenging and interesting. Yeah. So you know that, that tends to draw a certain type of person to the role. Talk to me a little bit. Um, I find it really interesting in the book, we spend so, you spend so much time talking about what happens when things go wrong, uh, blameless postmortems. And it, I'm really curious about why the SRE movement puts that front and center? What, what kind of influenced your, your thinking around that? I mean, I think the basic tension here is that if people know they're going to get blamed for reporting an issue, they're going to cover it up as long as they can, right? If you're like, oh my gosh, if I'm the one who points out that the system is on fire while I'm on duty, I might get fired. Like, what is your incentive to actually point out a problem there, and and further, when you, when there was a problem and there was a fire, um, ooh, I caused that. But if I don't tell anyone, then I won't get fired. And we can just put chalk it up to it just happened or the system broke, and and then that way I don't have to I don't have to worry about my job. Um, it all comes down to psychological safety. 
with yeah. a, a, and not just in our industry. Uh, th this is this is all through all sorts of all sorts of industries where they really really care about safety and um, and reliability and resiliency. This is all through aviation. This is all through the fire fire um, incident response. Uh, all yeah, there, there's all so so many examples of um, if you increase the psychological safety and allow people to report problems, even if they cause those problems, uh, then you end up with a net increase in safety and reliability. And I think the flip side of this coin is we also don't want to encourage a culture of heroism, mm. where you know somebody went to incredible lengths and feats of strength to fix the entire system and they were the only person that could do it and they were awake for 36 hours working on this nonstop. Again, psychological safety, like we don't want people to be in a work environment where that's what's expected of them. Like you should be able to hold down an SRE job as your normal job. You know, if you're responding to an emergency, you should be able to go home and rest at the end of your eight hour shift and hand that problem off to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. That's a, that's a, yeah, great. I think it's, it's really interesting to me. Um, what I see a lot of times, like in dysfunctional families, um, there are secrets <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. And when there's a problem, we don't deal with it directly. Oh, that's just Uncle Al. You know, we, we just kind of ignore what he did at the family picnic, right? Or it's it's interesting. Dysfunctional companies are kind of the same way. When something goes wrong, I walk in the room and first off, I see the developers and the operations team glowering at each other from opposite sides of the table. Or worse, there's no recap at all. There was no problem, right? We're just gonna not tell anyone. Like like Steven said a little earlier, those are anti-patterns. Those are dis dysfunctional companies where it, it, there is no psychological safety and where we're all focused on ignoring problems or blaming each other. Definitely, I, I love the dysfunctional family analogy. That's great. I, I was talking to, to an engineer, a senior engineer at a company that was trying to implement SRE and it was, it was uh, uh, his role to do this. And he said to me, I can't wait for our first outage because in the first postmortem, I'm gonna I'm gonna point out all the things that I did wrong, just so I could demonstrate to everybody that it's okay to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, do it. <laughs> um, it, it, this is something which I hear people talk about with blameless postmortems: is oh, it's a blameless postmortem. You can't put anybody's name in it because you're not supposed to blame anyone. I, I think that's that's actually an appropriate thing if there's if there's sort of lacking psychological safety. But after you sort of get over a hump. It's actually okay to name everyone because nobody's worried about that. Yeah. I, th I think that's a, that's a great place to get to. Definitely. In, in the workbook, I love the, you have some very specific examples of like, for instance, how we've, you know, at Google, how we've recovered from outages. And that, that was interesting to me because um, although you're not casting out specific names, it, it's, it's not left vague. Let's put it that way. Uh, no, not vague at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you see some or some companies kind of overreact where every outage has to have a postmortem and every to-do is kind of equally and urgently important and vital? Because Google kind of caps what, what they choose to work on. It, it, it really depends on, on how important reliability is to the company. Um, and, and this is actually a point, like as soon as you get to, to sort of beyond the something went wrong, we'll fi file a couple of bugs about it when you're actually sort of so accounting for this long term and uh, you've got like bigger projects that come out of postmortems or incidents or things that you found that went wrong. At a certain point, it gets up to that, that sort of project management, the 
product management level where real decisions have to be made. Do we fund reliability or do we fund features? And that's the point that you want to get to, honestly, where, where there is a conscious decision being made. Oh, we could improve reliability or we could accept the current situation and we can make that decision with eyes open. And I, I think that's actually a goal. And I think it's important here to talk about um, how do you go about making an action item list in the wake of a postmortem? Um, because it's it's important that this list of action items you make is stuff that's actually actually actionable um, and that you've struck about between short-term fixes that you can immediately apply, you know, those longer-term structural improvements. Um, it's also super important that every action item has an has a clear owner, because otherwise it's just too easy to let nobody look at that for you know six, nine, twelve months. Um, and one so, owner. Yeah. So, and on that topic, um, Sue Luder and I actually published an article about that um, in Login, the Usenix Journal, in 2017. If people want to check that out, if they're interested in postmortem action items, I find that uh, really fascinating. How how companies respond to failure, um, because uh, we've we've seen articles, for instance, about Mark Zuckerberg walking around with coffee, you know, helping out the guys that are kind of in the war room, knocking down problems. It's not, they're not separate from things. And, and yet at the same time, they're not walking around with a hammer looking to fire someone. You know, who did this? What can we do to them? You know? <laughs> yeah, donuts work much better than hammers. So, um, and I'm, I'm one more question along this line. Uh, I find it interesting that, that Google, def, these are not just dead events, but you guys have software and you make sure these are like, used as fuel for an internal game day. You have like these disaster prep sessions. Do you think it's important for companies to do that? Do you maybe talk a little bit about how Google actually uses um, your your path as a lesson to help uh, train and prepare for the next incident? Uh, so so we do, we do, we have two programs of work that, that I think you're referring to and they're, they're more or less the same at different levels. Um, we've got DIRT, which is our uh, um, disaster recovery testing. Obviously the I is, is lowercase, um, which is our yearly uh, disaster palooza of, of uh, uh, simulated outages and testing of, of large um, systematic uh, responses to failure. Uh, that's, uh, and we write about that in the book. Um, that's, that's a really great way of, of uh, getting teams that would ordinarily never see a large outage to actually learn how to actually respond in that, in that way, in that situation. And, you know, get, allow all the teams who want to test all of their procedures to test their procedures. And then, then the other thing I think you're referring to is uh, is our wheel of misfortunes. That's that's the name that we have for it. Sort of, I love uh, that name so much. Yeah, go um, ahead. <laughs> see, so somebody has a JavaScript wheel that they can spin to, to say which outage they're going to do today. Uh, and often those wheel of misfortunes are just um, uh, role playing through something interesting that happened recently that the one of her own callers had to debug. And mostly that's to sharpen the tools that we use and maybe use a little bit rarely uh, to, so that everybody knows how to use them and how to use them efficiently. So the next time something similar happens, we know how to diagnose it and we know how to fix it. Um, these, these are super important because as you, in fact, they are more, more important, the more reliable. When your system is hugely unreliable, everybody knows how to fix everything because you, you, you're practicing. You don't have to do game days. 
you don't have to do Wheel of Misfortune. Everybody knows how to do everything because they're doing it all the time. It's actually when you get more reliable that your and your time between incidents uh, increases that you start to get a bit rusty. And so you actually have to practice in order to be able to respond quickly and drive down your time to recovery. Um, yeah, I think the point behind both of these kinds of exercises are that, you know, if you're not exercising these disaster protocols, you don't want your tools, your processes, and your thinking skills to atrophy in that time that lapses between major emergencies. Because if you're not actively using them, you know, they are going to get rusty. Yeah, absolutely. Your, your troubleshooting muscles start to, yeah, atrophy a little bit. I get that. Uh, yeah, not just the muscles, but sometimes, like, if, if there's a tool that you only run during emergencies, are you going to trust that it works? Are you going to know how it works? Do you remember what it's called? Uh, especially if your emergency is too far apart. Uh, there's yeah. actually one of, one of the reasons why we try and make all emergency procedures as, as close to normal day-to-day -to -day toilet procedures as possible. Um, that, that way everybody remembers how to do them. One of the things that I think is interesting too, um, we're talking about reliability, um, and this is something that's quite common out of post-mortem sense scenarios, is that we start doing a timeline, and it's like, well, we're, we're really not sure when exactly this happened. Or here's the chain of events we think that happened, but we're not sure. So there, there's a blind spot here with our guardrails, and especially monitoring. Um, Google obviously has quite a extensive suite around building metrics and monitoring. What advice do you have for companies that are kind of blind with how their software is currently functioning uh, for end users? Do you advise going down the SAAS role or um, what's some thoughts you have around metrics and monitoring? I, okay, so there's, there's, two, there's two things here. One is you've got to be able to know what your customer's experience is. And once you know what your customer's experience is, and this can be as simple as just knowing how many HTTP 200s you're serving and how many seconds it, it takes to serve those requests, uh, just latency and availability. Um, if if you know that, that you're serving 500s, you know your system's down. If you know you're serving 200s, you know it's probably probably good. Um, and that's that's uh, the most basic SLO that you can possibly put in. And then uh, there's there's the other side of it which is the really detailed information about exactly how everything in the system is functioning, which you're going to be leaning on heavily to understand what's going wrong in your incidents um, and, and uh, sometimes called observability. Um, you need both of these classes of things. Like you really need those really strong alerting signals. There's something wrong right now. And in fact, this is the, this is often in the, the sort of the alert timeline in the incident timeline, the, the, the thing that actually matters. When did it actually go wrong? When did the customer start noticing? And if you, and if you don't, if you're not getting that out of uh, your monitoring, then that should be a post-mortem action item to get that signal. Uh, but then the, the observability side of it, where you really actually have to understand to a deep level exactly what's going on with your, going on with your systems, all of that, all of those uh, non-golden signals, you know, the, your CPU usage, your RAM utilization, uh, your event, event loop delay, uh, all of these internal signals, you've, you've got to be able to record and put them somewhere. Now, I'm, I'm not here to, to sell you on a, on a SaaS or say that you should go one way or the other, but um, those are the things that you should look at what you have right now and say, do I have that? And if I don't have it right now, how am I going to get it? Um, and the, the solution is, is uh, probably going to be very unique to the situation you're in as well. Mm-hmm. 
and what your customers consider important. Absolutely. A lot of times our triage teams, we don't have that information available to us. It's very difficult to figure out what server or what resource pool is having trouble. Yeah, I was going to say you might be getting a lot of monitoring data, but if it's not actually measuring things that your users care about, like, it's just not useful. So to reiterate what Steven said, go back and start from the fundamental question of what do your users care about? Are you capturing that at a very basic level? And you mentioned earlier in our interview, you said, listen, we kind of alluded to this, you know, how, how much can we trust our signals? And when there's a red build, do we know if it's really red? And so you're, you're kind of touching on, on our, our test layer. The impression I get is most of the applications out there that, that are being run by enterprises, we really can't be confident that red means red. Is that your impression as well? I, I see everywhere and Google and elsewhere that um, you can end up with not trusting your monitoring. Uh, you, and you, can't, you can't trust the, the, that a build failure is a build failure. And that's that's just something that's got to be addressed. And I would be staffing SRE to look at that problem very, very deeply to understand well, how have we got to a place where we can't trust that when the monitoring says there's a problem that our customers also think there's a problem. Um, you, you need that confidence. And that's that's just the, the first place that I would, I would be um, staffing some project work, which would have some seriously lasting value. Let's hop back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if a team was tasked with go back, get the monitoring working and, and come back with uh, a report on what you did, that would be an excellent first project for an SRE team. So uh, let's, let's kind of, I know we're, we're wrapping up uh, to, to a close here. I, I am curious though, did you guys enjoy writing the SRE workbook? Was that, was writing a good experience? I know Betsy, for you, it's almost been like your, your career from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I love working on books and you know, it's very complicated with these contributor volumes because we literally have dozens of people contributing and that's a lot of moving parts. And I think, Every core team I've been on, at the end of the book, they always joke, what's the next one going to be? Ha ha. Well, none of us are going to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> and now I think this core team on this book, someone said, well, maybe except Betsy. Um, so I enjoy it. Like It's very much uh, take some strong project management skills in the core team in addition to strong technical skills and having, you know, kind of a overall cohesive technical vision and then writing skills as well. But, you know, I find it super rewarding if we're actually putting out stuff that other people want to read. So I will continue working on books as long as that is true. The, the, this is the, the first and only book that, that I've, I've worked on and I found it just a, an exhilarating experience. Uh, just uh, g going th going through all the material that was being prepared. I think I, I think we tallied it up at the end of the end of the last book with all the contributors and uh, and and authors and every everything we had for the workbook. It, it was uh, something like 149. I, I round up to an, to an even 150, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, contributors to the book and and being wow. able to pull all of that together. Um, uh, Betsy giving it like that wonderful consistent tone. You wouldn't know that it was that patchwork, right? Uh, and and looking at all the information that's being presented, and then uh, looking at it for for all the things that we need. Like what 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 is the lasting value that people will get out of this? Uh, what are they going to learn by reading this chapter? Are we hitting the right notes? 
um, I, I, I just found it fantastic to, to sort of come to the end of it and say, we actually did what we set out to do in all of these chapters. That's just amazing that we've got that done with so many contributors. And and Betsy's right. The project management is such a such a large component of it. <laughs> yeah, and I think the maybe I don't know if it's surprising or not, but the one of the most pleasant aspects about working on a book like this is how generous people are with their knowledge and their time. Um, it really is a group effort, and you know, people both inside and outside of Google who went above and beyond in writing or giving us feedback. Um, you know, it was very gratifying to work with just so many giving people and really smart people. So I, I find it challenging at times when you're talking about people giving you like um, constructive feedback on the book. It's like, you know, some you talk about your child, you know. <laughs> uh, that that ended up being uh, a job that we had to do was was take the the constructive feedback that we're given uh, and then repackaging it in a way that we, would, was actually actionable for our authors because it's like it's one thing to say this is not doing the right thing and that it's it's not written well and uh, this entire section should be deleted and then actually going and um, packaging that up in feedback, which is, you know, not only digestible, but gives them something to do with it. Cause you can't just say, you know, this is bad. You've actually got to say what you need to do is write something else here. And, and just getting, getting all of that feedback processed and pushed through was, was a large, large part of the, the job that Betsy and I and the other core team had to do. Yeah. And people were overwhelmingly like really receptive and gracious of this feedback. So that was a pleasant surprise. Like not that many people, I mean, if they did get their hackles up, we didn't know about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, it helps to sugarcoat, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, we, we have a friend. It's like, oh, your baby is so, she's just so interesting. Or I forget that she has a phrase, you know, it's, like, it's a code word for ugly, you know? <laughs> oh, your book is so interesting. Yeah. Strong features. <laughs> I really love the pictures. Or I, man, I just, yeah, that forward is really absorbing. I just can't get past it. Wow. So uh, one last question then. How do you guys stay like uh, cutting edge when it comes to your learning? Are there any blogs, books, or podcasts you've got that you'd like uh, you'd like to recommend? It? Well, other than yours, which is fabulous, obviously. Obviously. Um, so I will say, I think one of the absolutely smartest and most visionary people in the SRE space is a former colleague, Niall Murphy, who worked with us on the first and second books. And he's actually with you now, Dave, at Microsoft. Um, he's the global, I believe he's the global head of Azure SRE right now. But um, his Twitter feed is an interesting thing to stay on top of. And in fact, I know that Microsoft S3 is about to put out a series of a few videos um, that are worth checking out. So um, I would recommend following Niall. I might shamelessly promote some of my recent work and say my coworker Salim and I um, have been working on putting a lot more content on the Google SRE website. Um, so if you check that out at google.com slash SRE, we've been adding a lot of content through a partnership we've had with O'Reilly this year. So, and we have a new Twitter handle, which is at Google SRE. Oh, nice. I'll have to check yeah. that out. 
It uh, took us a while to get that. We had to wrest it from the hands of some anonymous person, but we have it now. There's content there. <laughs> Stephen, what about you? Uh, I I have been just so deeply working with our customers at Google through the customer reliability engineering side of things. The, the, I, I haven't been reading blogs and podcasts so much, but I, I always have a, a Twitter search for um, SRE book and DevOps SRE and a bunch of other other search terms. And I, and I just randomly comment on people when they talk about our book or when people are talking about DevOps versus SRE and things like that. And I, I, I really like connecting sort of that, not with like specific publishers of information, but uh, connecting with people who are either discovering it for the first time or have a vehement disagreement with things we wrote and things like this. I, I just love that sort of uh, happenstance of of, uh, of connection with the people who, who actually are genuinely talking about it right now. Um, oh, I do have two more recommendations of generally interesting people to follow. I always think that charity majors and Bridget, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of her last name, Kromhout, K-R-O-M-H-O-U-T. They're both super smart and have interesting things to say about SRE. So we're checking them out on Twitter too, I think. Uh, Charity wrote um, the database reliability engineering book, yeah. uh, which I I love. It's it's Because uh, it, the, the one thing we don't talk about in, in our books is how do you deal with state? And the database reliability engineering book is all about how you deal with state and the different challenges and the different approaches. And so that's actually a book that I actually highly recommend for, for folks who are who are running databases or other sta highly stateful systems. Oh, yes. Yet, yet another acronym there is the whole world of data ops. It's amazing how um, that data layer can be, it's very common to be like the, the single biggest constraint we have in our with our deployments. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, how do you, how do, you do a schema change uh, right. and roll that out uh, gently when you have to change everything all at once? I mean, the, the challenge is a, a myriad and, um, uh, and that that book is a is a good book that I highly recommend. It's funny. I went to um, I went to recently to a, a large semiconductor company uh, on site. We were talking about DevOps, and I heard the same thing from them that I do from very small shops. It's not working for us the way that DevOps does in the books. It just doesn't work. Like like we read about. I love Accelerate. But it's a laundry list of things we need to do, and it's not helping us. It's it, I love SRE because it's a very specific implementation. There's not the fuzziness that we get where anything and everything can be considered DevOps. Yes, we are warm and fuzzy, but not in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a, a prescription is a very good thing. It, it gets us um, past the hump of where do we start. And and so that, I love the books you, you have written. I think it really adds quite a bit to DevOps. So we look forward to seeing even more from you down the road. I'm really looking forward, Betsy, to that security book when it comes out too. Awesome. Yeah, it should be out early 2020. So um, stay tuned. Well, Stephen and Betsy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. <laughs>